0: In teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Good morning. My name is Lydia. I'm one of the pastors here at Missio. It's good to be with you. I realized this morning that I, uh, I think I preached on the first Sunday of January, and here we are on the last Sunday of January. So we've made it. The longest month of the year. Woohoo! Um... So if we went around the room, I imagine that we would all be able to share an experience with street preachers. Am I right? Is this true? I'm still figuring out what's the norm here out west because I'm an East Coaster, Um, but I definitely had my fair share of them growing up. But I imagine that many of those stories, if you have them, would involve something um, perhaps unpleasant, strange, possibly humorous maybe. Uh, my own personal stories and experiences with street preachers come actually from my college days. So both my husband, John, and I attended the University of Georgia, um, who just so happened to have recently won the national championship in college football. Go Dogs. I know that means nothing to any of you here, but it is a huge deal back home. First time in 40 years. But anyway... College football is huge in the South, if you weren't aware. And so Saturdays in Athens, Georgia, were crazy. Lots of people descended on the city, um, and there was lots of tailgating and drinking and bad behavior, to be sure. But for a lot of people, it was just, you know, a fun social activity, a a cultural practice. You know, sports ball, right? It's fairly innocent in its essence. Um, Good-natured fun. So every Saturday, thousands would stream into the stadium and there was always this street preacher situated on the street where you enter screaming at people. And the thing about this guy was he wasn't thinking, here's a lot of people who really need to hear about the love of Jesus, let me shout that at them. No, his tact was more trying to make us all feel really guilty about the engagement Uh, I mean, the practice we were about to enter, which was watching football, not some sordid activity, but he created this sort of dichotomy um, between heaven and Jesus and hell and college football. In fact, one of my friends reminded me that he had a picture taken in front of him, um, and it said, like, you know, hell, no, heaven, yes, or something like that, and there was football on it. But John and I will never forget uh, him yelling at us as we walked by into the stadium, and he yelled at us. You worship a dog! (laughs) And I didn't do a southern accent because southern accents already have bad connotations. I don't want to add to that stereotype because I'm from the south. But he was referring, of course, to our school mascot. We were the Bulldogs. And I guess the assumption was that by attending the game, we were worshiping the mascot or something. Like, that's a pretty big accusation. And this guy most assuredly did not know state of our souls. Like, how could he? He was just yelling at thousands of people, none of whose, or at least most of whose personal stories he didn't know. Like, he didn't know what their background was, what their upbringing was, what their current relationship with God or the church was, what they were going through currently in their personal life. None of that. Again, how could he? He was just yelling what I presume he thought the good news of Jesus to be, at a crowd. So I'm not saying that all street preaching is bad, and I know that the Spirit can use anything that he wants to, to get the message of Jesus across. However, this guy, like many street preachers that I've, in, I've met with since, is hardly what could be described as sort of a winsome approach, you might say. And I imagine that none of us in this room, had you experienced it, would have particularly been like, inclined to ask him for evangelism tips, like wow, this approach seems so effective. Tell me more. And, and, you know, I don't know. Perhaps some were saved by this method, um, but I personally never saw what looked to be any pleasant interactions with this gentleman. But even if we all agree that street preaching is not the way to go, most of us would still admit that the whole idea of evangelism as an enterprise is fraught with guilt and reluctance and Perhaps downright dread for many of us. Is that true? (laughs) You don't have to raise your hands, but I can. Yes. And it might be because if you grew up in certain Christian contexts, the model for evangelism was not something that you'd really want to engage in with today. So, in my world growing up, in the world of youth group, uh, a lot of my friends went on these like beach trips. And I think the idea was to sort of like fuse spring break with like a missions trip or something like that. And so one night there was always this you know, moment where you were pressured to like walk up to strangers on the beach and have this kind of awkward encounter with them and it would usually end with, if you died tonight, where would you go? So again, I'm not saying good things can't come of these encounters, perhaps they have their place. But many of us, I think look at these models and think like, none of this looks attractive to me. I don't wanna do any of these things. Maybe back in the day when I was in high school or college, but like, not only these things I can't imagine myself doing in my current context in life, but like, I hate it when people try to push things on me. Like, so why would I want to do that to someone else? I had coffee with someone recently, and we were, they had also grown up doing something similar. They were forced to go door-to-door talking to people about Jesus. And we jokingly said we had PTSD about these experiences as teens, Um, So many of us have had these really negative experiences, either doing it ourselves or being on the receiving end of it. And yet, as we heard read earlier by Meg, the last thing that Jesus told his disciples, very end of Matthew, before he ascended into heaven, was what? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Trinity, and teach them everything I had commanded you. So, clearly, It's supposed to be something, as Christ followers, that we're supposed to be engaging in. From the sound of it, and like, maybe kind of regularly. (laughs) Like, you might even call it a practice. And so you might be stuck in this tension of gnawing guilt at not really engaging in this practice. That seems like a big deal and a big part of the Christian life. And yet, not really wanting to do it in any of the ways That has been presented to you. And right now in particular, I think it's even harder to find the idea of trying to present your belief system to someone else as something to be tolerated, let alone an attractive way of life. We live in a highly secular age where ideas like speak your truth, obey your heart, meaning whatever desires crop up, throw off all authority. Those are the sorts of ideas that are kind of, like, floating around. They're applauded. And so the idea of walking around with claims to absolute truth is kind of like how my boys would say, like, highly sus. (laughs) Like, how could I possibly do something like evangelism without coming off as this sort of, like, know-it-all square jerk? Who wants to be that? Well, it's super fitting that we're talking about this during the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany is a season in the church calendar, it's a feast season. It's where we think about and we celebrate the person of Jesus. He's the revelation of God in the person of Jesus. For the first time, Jesus showed the world what God was like in the form of a person. But as one of my friends wrote recently, Epiphany is more than just a feast, it's more than a celebration. It's a call to action. Because with the incarnation, Jesus came to earth and he presented himself as the light of the world. That's what he refers to himself as in, the John, in John's gospel. But he also told his disciples in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. And he charged them there. He gave them this sort of like call to action. He says... You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So what is this this practice supposed to look like? Because it's so rare to see a model of evangelism that looks natural, attractive, winsome, or even effective, like we said. To us, evangelism has looked, like, coercive and judgmental at worst. And, I don't know, transactional at best. One of my friends, his very first week at Virginia Tech when he was in college, first day, I think. And he was a Christian, been a Christian all of his life but he gets uh, approached by this very well-intentioned student from probably a student ministry, I don't remember which one, clipboard in hand, questions all laid out, and he you know, could sense what was happening, but he very politely stood there and answered all of his questions. But then it became apparent after he asked his name that he was counting him as a new convert. And my friend Drew was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm already a Christian. Don't put my name down. Like, you can't count me. Like I'm not part of your quota. But it's, that's what it's been reduced to, right? It's been reduced to this quota. It's almost formulaic at best. But folks, if we know anything about Jesus, we know that clearly this is not what he had in mind when he said, let your light shine before others. And yet, just because we haven't seen it done well Or effectively doesn't mean excuses us from the practice altogether. Uh, Rich Velotis puts it like this. He says, to take the call of following Jesus seriously means we open ourselves up to the surrounding world, prayerfully moving toward it in love. The results are up to God, but we have a part to play. So perhaps we need a vision for what that looks like today here, 2022, Salt Lake City. And to be clear, I am not suggesting that this is anything new that I'm presenting. Here's your foolproof way, Lydia Foreman trademark. No, not at all. Proclaiming the gospel has really always been this simple. And we, and by we, I mean the dear church whom we love despite its flaws and its mistakes, which there are many, we have ended up making it more complicated than it needs to be. Because truly, it is just a practice that is as simple as telling your story. Hence the word chosen for today's practice, story. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, your story as a Christian, quite simply, is, as David Fitch puts it, the story of God founded in your own experience. So if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then you claim the gospel as truth. And as many of us know, the gospel means the good news. But what is that good news? What is that truth? Well, it's that Jesus is Lord. Simple as that. Meaning that because of the person and the work of Jesus, he is redeeming the world. He's putting the world to rights, as N.T. Wright likes to put it. And he's inviting us, as his followers, to join him in his mission, as we say here at Messio, the renewal of all things, of proclaiming life where there is death, of freedom where there is addiction, love where there's hate, justice where there's oppression, peace where there's chaos. Now, we say these things all the time when we get together in these spaces. It may sound familiar to you. I hope they do. And these are big, big claims. These are cosmic claims. But that's the story we tell in this space. And it's actually the main reason that we get together regularly on a Sunday. Because we are rehearsing this story in communion, in worship, in scripture reading, in fellowship. We're reminding each other of the new reality that we're living in as God's people but then we head into our everyday lives, and what does the lordship of Jesus look like on a more local level? Say like a Tuesday afternoon. What does it look like in your particular story? And this is going to be unique to all of us because all of us, of course, are different. The life that I live puts me in, very dif- puts me in touch with very different people than people my dad comes into contact with, who lives in rural Georgia, who look very different than the people that come into contact with my friends who live in Atlanta and Boston and London and Turkey. The broader truth remains the same, Jesus is Lord, but the particular truth that he is working in all these particular specific circumstances to bring about their renewal, their flourishing, Now, the reason we picked the term story for this practice is that there's a few things that are inherent to storytelling, personal storytelling, sharing your story, that might not be automatically assumed of evangelism, though they should be. So first, story is contextual. And this is what I meant when I brought up street preachers, because they are fundamentally not contextual. But our personal stories are. By nature, personal stories flow from who we are and what we've experienced. Who we are and why we are. Because we all have a context that makes up who we are. I went hiking with someone yesterday that I'm trying to get to know, and that was literally the first thing we had to, you know, get out of the way as we were, like, embarking on a new friendship. was kind of like, who are you? Who are you? What's your story? Where'd you grow up? i got to have context if we're going to get anywhere in this relationship, Right? I love how Heather put it last week. I wrote it down. Practices remind us of who we are and why we are. And this couldn't be more true of story. So when it comes to telling our own story and its intersection with Jesus, this idea of context should really be freeing to us because all that is expected of us is to simply be ourselves. So for those of us who fear the idea of sharing your faith because we think we have to have all the answers in order to do it that was me for sure especially in high school i could not have been more obnoxious with my pursuit of apologetics but the idea that like we have to have all the right answers that we have to be pros at apologetics that we need to solve the problem of suffering before we feel comfortable opening up to our friends about jesus be at peace because all that is asked of us is that to proclaim the good news of Jesus, we do so from a place that we currently are with all of our weaknesses, our humility, and our flaws. In the letters to the Corinthians, Paul is writing to a set of Christians who live in a very sophisticated cosmopolitan culture. That was Corinth back then. And there was this group of people, the second sophists, they were a very popular philosophical and rhetorical movement at the time. And that may sound like very complicated, but really all it meant was, kind of the best way to describe them was, they were the Instagram influencers of their day. Because they were very, very dynamic, uh, popular public speakers and like Instagram influencers today, it was really less about how intellectually superior they were and more about how persuasive they could be in their sort of flashy presentation. So like, no one would quote or cite Gwyneth Paltrow in an intellectual paper as like a source, but do people live their lives by her advice? A hundred percent they do, right? They were all about winning followers, you might say. And so these people are really, really famous at the time, they have all the attention, and Paul senses that the people of Corinth are a bit disappointed in him. He's a little bit lackluster in his presentation. I mean, he's a tent maker, like that is not a sexy profession. So they're kind of ashamed of him, and he senses this, and they're like, come on, Paul, Like, can you spice it up a little bit? Like, look at, look at your competition, look at who you're having to compete with for a platform. And Paul is well aware of how they're feeling. And so he pushes back on them and he says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. That is what God wants to use, people. Like, even Paul was scared. Like, he knew he couldn't compete with the first century goop of his day. But he also knew deep down that God didn't want dynamic speaking skills. He doesn't want your five points to dismantle atheism. He doesn't need your foolproof strategies of how to win 200 souls in your lifetime. He simply wants to use your story and your context because that's where the spirit comes in. That's the raw material the the spirit wants to work with. The other stuff, honestly, gets in the way. So rather than worry about whether we're gonna have the right answers to the problem of pain, you know, rather than keeping ourselves up at night worrying that we would lose in a debate with Richard Dawkins or something, what might it look like if we were to simply trust that whomever the Lord has put in our lives, that all that's expected of us is simply to be ourselves with them, to just be us, whoever that is, whatever that looks like. Rather than going in search of some other entry point over there, some context that we're you know, completely unfamiliar with, look for one in your present situation. And what will happen is, in the normal course of sharing your life, whether it's the highs, the lows, the good, the bad, the joys, the sorrows, we just show up with our authentic self and as David Fitch says, will inevitably happen, a moment will come that begs for the proclaiming of the gospel in our lives. I love that. We don't have to worry about it. And by the way, if those big questions do come up, it's absolutely fine to say, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know the answer to that big cosmic question. I don't know how God's plan fits there. Be honest. But you could say, but what I do know is this. And then speak from your own experience. And you know what? It's absolutely okay if they dismiss you based on that response. That's not your problem. You can leave that to the Lord. Don't force it. Also, this is not a practice that's reserved for total strangers or for presumed non-believers. Just as we practice story in this space on Sundays, we should be regularly proclaiming the gospel even to the other believers in our lives. So recently a friend of mine, my best friend, um, was sharing with me sort of some marriage difficulties that she's been going through. And as I was asking questions about sort of the nature of the problem, and how they might begin to tackle the issues. I realized in that moment what I needed to say to her was not just, well, I'll be praying for you, which I did. Have you thought about marriage counseling? Which I did. I did say all that. All of those things, those are good things. But it was also an opportunity to proclaim the lordship of Jesus over their marriage. Because I know them, and I know their story, both of them, and she knows things about my marriage and the way that God has miraculously worked in it, I was able to proclaim the gospel over her situation based out of my own experience. Now, I I know them, like I said, I know their story, and I believe that these two people are supposed to be married. And because I trust and I love Jesus, and I know God wants to enter that relationship, and he wants to bring flourishing and renewal and healing there, and so in that moment, I said to my friend, and honestly, I said this because I was working on this sermon, and so <laughs> I thought, this is a good moment. Hey, I believe that Jesus is Lord, even our over our marriages. It was simple, it was easy, it was natural, it was not weird at all. We make it very complicated, but it doesn't have to be. When I read uh, Deeply Formed Life last year, uh, something that Rich Belotus Wrote uh, about sharing your testimony, I thought it was so spot on. And I thought at the time, I hope more people hear this. So here it is. Here's my opportunity to share it with you. He says, We have incorrectly understood extroversion to be a spiritual gift that everyone must cultivate. But God invites us to consider our own personalities, contexts, and experiences, and out of who we are, discerningly participate in what He is already doing. Being on mission doesn't require us to be intrusive, awkward, and coercive. It should be a normal experience. It should just bubble up in the natural conversation of things and the natural sharing of our lives. We're simply offering ourselves, which brings me to another aspect of story. It's contextual, but it's also a form of hospitality. When we share our own stories, it opens ourselves up to others. We let our guards down. We let people get a glimpse of the real us. Just like what we do when we invite people to our homes, right? And they see how we really live. And when we do that, it's an invitation for others to do the same thing. So like once you've seen the dog hair in your friend's apartment, you're a little more comfortable with them coming over and seeing the crumbs on the counter and the dead plants in the windowsill. You're like, yeah, they know. (laughs) They get it. It's a form of generosity and it's a form of hospitality and it just so happens to be the model that God offers us because he has always, from the beginning of time, been trying to draw near to his people, offering his presence. And this has taken many forms. It began at creation, literally creating humanity, to the tabernacle in the wilderness, all the way to the incarnation, to Jesus coming to earth. This is why Jesus came and he lived on earth and actually interacted with people as a human rather than just like chucking an instruction manual from heaven and being like, let me know when you figure that out and we can be friends. No, he humbled himself by offering his very presence to the world. And then when he ascended, like we just read in Matthew 28, he left us his spirit to guide us in all truth and bring to remembrance everything he said so that we're never alone. And so as his followers, presence is what we must offer the world first and foremost as well. I like how David Fitch so succinctly puts it. He says, presence precedes proclamation. Amazing alliteration there. If you are a grammar nerd, you're like, yes, it feels so good, so satisfying. I know I would would have been very excited if I had been the one to come up with that. Presence must precede proclamation, meaning, Before we offer truth, we show up. Jesus tells us in John 4 that we must must worship both in spirit and in truth. John Mark Comer, in his most recent book, he talks about this and he says, you know, the point is that Jesus came to give us the truth, to point us to reality. This was his function, his job as a teacher. He was a rabbi, he pointed to reality, the meaning behind everything. But he didn't just lob truth bombs at his disciples from a comfortable distance. No, he also offered his spirit, meaning his relational presence. He was a human and experienced all the pain and suffering that that entails. He leveled with his disciples. He was brutally honest with them at times. It was kind of painful even. But he also shared meals with them He healed their bodies. He mourned with them. He lived life with them. So, similarly, we must approach others, as we would in any relationship that we truly care about, with both presence and proclamation, spirit and truth, relationship and reality. As a parent, I'm not really loving my kids if I lie to them about the dangers of the world, if I, if I hide the truth from them. I need to tell them the truth. That's my job. But I also don't just drop truth bombs on them either. So for example, when, I, when they were learning how to swim, I needed to level with them about the dangers of drowning, you know, like this is a scary thing. That's the reality of the situation. I mean, I didn't say like you could die, but I, I tried to be, make it as scary as possible. But I also didn't chuck them in the deep end either <laughs> to let them learn this reality. No, what I did was, you know, at the very beginning, I held them as we walked into the deep end and we, they saw the water get higher and higher. Okay, I see, I see what you're talking about. And then when they got a little bit braver, I was near to them by the edge as they jumped off into my arms and I caught them. I stayed close to them once they learned how to, like, you know, swim a little bit, acquired some skills, but they could always feel my presence, that I wasn't too far from them if things went wrong. I doubt they would have gotten very far in their swimming career if I had simply told them, there's a strong possibility you'll drown if you get into the pool, and that was it. And that's true, that's reality, but my presence was paramount to their learning process. Similarly, if we don't offer our presence to others, it's really not going to matter what we tell them, right? The point is not to convert or force people to believe what we believe. Leave that to the Lord, who we believe is living and active both before, during, and after our interactions with other people. Our job as believers is simply to open our hearts to the people around us because that's what God has done for us so, Missio, when it comes to your story, to sharing your story, this practice of storytelling, perhaps begin by asking whom the Lord might be inviting you to share your story with. Pray that the Spirit will make this clear to you. And I think that if you ask, he will. <laughs> so be prepared. <laughs> it's happened to me. And if you still have... Fear and trepidation when it comes to talking about Jesus. Think about the way that you talk about a best friend or describe a best friend of yours that you know and love to someone else, to other people. And how does this compare to how you feel about Jesus? Is your stomach still not up thinking about that? I mean, maybe you feel comfortable saying you love Jesus, but do you like Jesus? Like how well do you know him? That's what makes talking about a best friend so easy and natural, right? So if that's the case for you, what are some practices that you might take up to start to build that relationship, to increase that intimacy? That may be where you need to start and that's totally fine. Finally, remember that this is also a practice that's so important to regularly do and engage in with other believers, like I said. Are we regularly reminding our brothers and sisters that Jesus is Lord? That he wants to bring flourishing and healing even in the day-to-day? Because he does, right? Thanks be to God. We believe this. Amen? Messio, would you pray with me before we come to the table? Jesus, we confess that we often forget about you. We forget that it is in you that we live and move and have our being. But we thank you that, as Paul says, you are not very far off from any of us. Show us the ways that we might be wanting, that you may be wanting us to share your our story with those who don't know you. Remind us that we don't need to have a perfect gospel presentation. Spirit, may we rest in your power to reveal truth. Use our stories, Lord, to proclaim the truth and to offer our presence to the world around us who so desperately needs to feel your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.